Love and Dragon Radio. I'm your host, ML Roostrak. I'm here with author and special guest, Steve E. Yo, I'm going to, I just had your name and I'm going to butcher it. If you listen to this show a lot, I do that. I'm the queen of butchering names, but welcome to the podcast and please let our audience know what your full name is. <laughs> Hi, and thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Stephen Iwanu. Uh, so you were close. You got the first couple syllables. <laughs> <laughs> I I do that. I, I am the queen of butchering names. I know I am. Um, but you have a wonderful book out that marks the ninth, if I'm reading this right, the 90th anniversary of the Lone Ranger, and you put a fictional twist on that yeah uh the lone ranger premiered on radio in buffalo uh 90 years ago this year and the it was written and created by a man named fran striker who is from buffalo my hometown and i wrote a novel called yesteryear that kind of explores how he came up with the idea for the character and the story and the challenges he had coming up with it so it's a a fictitious imagining of how Franz Stryker came up with an iconic character and story well that actually is very interesting to take something that actually happened make a fictional story out of it but then you have the whole fictional Lone Ranger to begin with that right. captivated and everyone that listened to radio back then yeah. And so the story was really my idea was because not only did Fran Stryker create and write The Lone Ranger, he also created and wrote The Green Hornet and Sergeant Preston of the Yukon, which were you know huge radio hits on their own. So my idea was write an adventure story about a man who made his living writing adventure stories, only he's going to be the main character and his mm -hmm. friend... Um, John Barrett, who was the original Lone Ranger when it premiered in Buffalo, is going to be his Tonto. And so these two buddies are going to try to um, uh, have an adventure and get back stolen rings and and stop the assassination of FDR and the whole time trying to create the Lone Ranger. So it was a really fun story to write and come up with. It sounds like, I mean, you have, you just put FDR in there. You have everything <laughs> you have everything under the sun that's going on during the time period. At the same time, you're trying to create the Lone Ranger, the actual show that we all loved back growing up. I mean, I still listen to reruns or watch reruns of that. So sure. there's a lot of things going on that's still relevant today. Yeah, there it it is, especially one of the areas I explore is, you know, where does the idea for stories and characters come from? And that's always like a question that people ask writers. And the answer is it's it's all around us. We get ideas from everywhere, what we read, conversations we have, experiences we have, memories. And so all those elements, all those tropes of the Lone Ranger are kind of swirling around Fran Stryker in my novel, but he isn't aware of them. He he sees a, a white horse and the readers think, oh, silver, this is where he gets the idea for silver. But it hasn't come together yet in Stryker's mind. So the readers actually know a little bit more about 
what's going to happen and how the Lone Ranger is going to be created than Stryker does during the course of most of the novel. Um, so it was really kind of a fun, a fun, a fun experiment, I guess. Well, I can't wait to read it because now you have my curiosity peaked. <laughs> and what I did also is I, I added in, I mentioned Roosevelt. Stryker obviously was a real life person. So was John Barrett. But I also mm -hmm. put in other um, people who lived in Buffalo during that time period uh, and their characters in the story. So one of his best friends is Jimmy Slattery, who was the former light hate, lightweight heavy Weight, light heavyweight champion of the world uh, who was from South Buffalo. He's in the, he's in the novel. And I even have um, Stephen Magdadino, who was head of the, the, the Buffalo mafia for, for decades. Um, he's in here and he is one of the antagonists to Franz Stryker. Uh, so there's a, pulling in a lot of real life characters and, and fictionalizing them was, was a blast. Well, wait, now you have the mob in there. <laughs> I got the mob in there. <laughs> um, what so don't there... you have in here? It sounds like you have a kitchen sink of everything. Well, yeah, I actually, I do. And when people ask me, well, what kind of book is it? I say, well, it's part historical fiction, certainly. It's part biographical fiction, certainly. But there's this noir element that comes in with the gangsters. It's a comic novel for sure. Um, there's magic realism um that's thrown in there so there's a, a lot of go a lot of mixing and bending of genres that goes on within the novel yeah it sounds like you have about 15 things going on at one time so you don't have one <laughs> genre that you fit in because i'm trying to categorize this well it's historical fiction sort of but you also have the crime fiction yep. in there because now you have the mob and you have saving fdr you have the Let's go, go find these stolen rings. So you have the crime fiction in there. And yep. you just meshed a lot of things together. But it sounds I, fun. It, it was. It was a fun book to write. Um, it was a fun book to research because um, Franz Stryker, when he passed away in the early 1960s, his estate left all his papers to the University of Buffalo. And I'm an alumni. So I was able to go into their special collections. And there has to be at least a, two dozen cases of papers memorabilia letters telegrams original scripts his typewriter um so i got to put on the white gloves and, and hold all those old ranger scripts and 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 read through all his notes um so it was just a lot of fun to to work on this novel that is pieces of history that we don't think of i mean how many times does a university get scripts from the original scripts to something yeah, how many times do we we actually get to see those i have a friend uh she's a writer when she was an undergrad at ub she had a a, a student internship uh work study program at that special collections library and at that time they had friends uh, uh typewriter his remington 16 typewriter from the 1930s on display and she said when no one was looking she'd rub it uh to <laughs> hope some of that magic would rub off into her fingertips as she was starting her her writing career that is always <laughs> wonderful to be able to touch history and prepare yourself you're literally touching history to write this book yeah it was um I didn't think of it that way at the time, but you're you're absolutely right. And pulling it all together um, was a challenge, 
but it, it, it was a really fun experience. And I'm looking forward to getting feedback from readers when the book comes out um, on October 3rd uh, to get their reactions to it. I foresee this being a very fun book that you're going to get a lot of positive feedback from. I hope so. Um, and what's great is, you know, Fran had this, this such an impact on 20th century American pop culture, but he's not a household name. And the reason he's not a household name, I think, is because he sold the rights to the 10 for the Lone Ranger for $10 before the Ranger exploded into this not only a cultural phenomenon, but a money-making enterprise. Um, mm -hmm. Even in the 30s, even during the Depression, they were selling Stryker wrote 18 Lone Ranger novels in hardback um, that the money went to George W. Trendle, the man who bought the rights for $10. All the toys, all the comic books, all the newspaper comic strips, all that income, all that revenue that was being generated by Stryker's character and the words he was writing didn't go in Stryker's pocket. Um, so it's kind of a bittersweet career he had. And to make it even a little bit more bitter, um, sometime in the 1940s, George W. Trendle, who owned the rights and owned radio station WXYZ in Detroit, where the Ranger was broadcast from, um, started claiming that he was the man who created the Lone Ranger, not Franz Stryker. So, because of that, I think Stryker's not a, a as well known of a name as a he should be. And I'm really hoping that this book kind of brings his name back into the conversation. We would hope so, because we want the original authors to get some recognition, even and, and if he, it's decades later. Yeah, I mean, he did. He's in the National Broadcasters Hall of Fame. He's in the local Buffalo um broadcasters hall of fame but as i said he's not a household name and i think um uh, a lot of it had to do with with what happened with the controversy about who created it and also because he he died really prematurely he was only in his late 50s in a car accident he never got a chance to write his memoirs or autobiography autobiography um and to tell his side of the story so like i said i'm hoping yesteryear kind of puts his name back into the conversation well, we hope to do that because that's important to history and important to people that love literature and the radio and where TV actually originated from. You don't think about it, but radio led into TV. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the Ranger, um, when George W. Trendle sold the rights to the Lone Ranger in 1954, um, he sold it for $3 million. And that was a record sale in the entertainment industry at the time a pretty good return on investment for a ten dollar purchase <laughs> yeah and and that was right when the ranger was starting to really transition from radio to, to television so we have that but now that you have this world coming out are you thinking about expanding on it or writing another novel where's your head at as an author uh, well uh, some good news um I have a second, a third, it'll be my third novel, actually, is going to come out in 2025. I, I call it my pandemic novel, even though it has nothing to do with the pandemic, except I wrote it when we were, were locked down. Um, I was living in a big house with a little one-eyed dog and couldn't go anywhere. It had finished up yesteryear, and I needed, you know, we read to escape, 
uh, I wrote to escape. I wrote to escape the awful pandemic news. Uh, I wrote to help deal with just the loneliness of the lockdown. And I came up uh, again with a, a historic novel set in the 1940s. It's called After Pearl um, because it takes place after Pearl Harbor. And it's about an alcoholic detective who has a little one-eyed dog and he wakes up on the floor of his hotel room and he can't remember anything from the past five days of his life except there's two bullets missing from his gun and the police want to talk to him about a missing singer. And that's what starts the, the mystery off. So that was a, a, another fun book to write. And it really got me through the lockdown, to be honest with you. Well, that's a good thing. I just, well, this year I published all the books I wrote down during lockdown. So that's a good thing. I mean, there's yeah. 24 books that I wrote as a writer that I just said, mass release all of them into the wow. public. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so we're lucky because I know a lot of writers and visual artists who really couldn't produce anything during, during COVID, the height of COVID, mm -hmm. just because it was, it preoccupied all their, their thoughts and energy. Um, I was mm -hmm. the opposite. I just put the blinders on and pretended none of that existed outside of my, my house and um, just escaped into this, this world that I could control of a, a fictional 1942 Buffalo, New York. Exactly. Sometimes as writers, we can tunnel vision. We have our computer or whatever writing medium we have. And we just stay there. Nothing else yeah. matters except the world we are creating in front of us. That's right. <laughs> and that's that's what got me through the got me through the lockdown. So that's great that you have two wonderful fun books. One that created the lockdown or mm -hmm. was invented during the lockdown. I shouldn't say mm -hmm. created. And then you have this one that's so fun that's coming out October 3rd, you said. Yeah, less than less than two weeks. Yesterday will be available. That'll be fun. So that's a two books. I'm missing one. I didn't realize you wrote one before this. Well, there's two before. <laughs> I have a, a short story collection that came out about eight years ago called Muscle Cars. And I described that as 17 stories about guys making bad decisions, um, semi-autobiographical. <laughs> and then my, my first novel came out last year um, and it's called Rook. And again, like yesteryear, it's based on the true story of a, a Buffalonian, a man named Al Nussbaum. And he grew up in Buffalo in the 50s, uh, married his high school sweetheart, uh, was an entrepreneur, had a couple small businesses, and he would tell his wife that he was going out of town for business. But Al's real business was robbing banks. And he robbed about a half dozen of them before his wife or the FBI knew what he was up to. And again, it's based on a true story. He, when he was finally discovered and had to go on the run, he went immediately to the top of the FBI's most wanted list. Reader's Digest offered a $10,000 reward for his arrest. And he kept robbing banks. Um, and J. Edgar Hoover called him the most cunning fugitive alive. Um, so that, again, was a, a fun book to research and write. Uh, a little unknown story or forgotten story here in my hometown. Yeah, that, that one, we talk about Scarface, we talk about Capone, we talk, you know, all these big monsters, but there are also so many little people that was doing the same thing. You have to remember, we didn't have their internet. A lot of houses didn't have phones. Right. You you didn't have a little call button in the banks to say, 
help. I got been robbed. Right. No you cameras, know. you know, no exploding die packs. Um, uh, you know, it was kind of like the glory days of bank robbing. You know, it was sort of the end of that, of that big being able to rob banks and, and have a, a chance of getting away with it. Uh, Cause he robbed over Same. a dozen. I think he, when he was eventually caught, he confessed to eight of them. Um, but there was more that he wasn't charged with. Um, what's interesting about Al's story and what hooked me is that when he went to prison, he became a writer while in prison. Um, he was writing for Alfred Hitchcock magazine and Mike Shane mystery magazine and Ellery Queen, a, a penny a word guy. Um, he even wrote scholastic books. If you remember when we were kids and you could order scholastic mm -hmm. books at school. So yeah, we were probably bringing home books written by a, you know, convicted felon who was in Leavenworth. Um, and when he got out, he his goal was to go out to California, go out to Hollywood and, and write out there. And he did. Um, and he actually won the Mystery Writers of America Award one year in the 70s. And in the interview following the award ceremony, somebody asked him, they said, Al, you've had this, this great second after your life. What do you think? And he goes, well, writing's fine, but I'd rather be robbing banks. Um, so he was he was unrepentant to the end. Well, you like what you like, and regardless <laughs> if it's right or wrong, I mean, society says robbing a bank is very wrong, so I won't, I won't disagree <laughs> agree with that. But if you like it, I guess that's what you're drawn to. <laughs> he loved, he loved the challenge of it. He was a chess player, a prison chess champion, um, but he loved and he approached he approached robbing banks as a chess game, and he said robbing banks is like chess with cash prizes um he just loved the challenge of it coming up with the strategy the contingency plans trying to outsmart the feds um and he never he didn't go inside the banks he would sit out in the car with a walkie-talkie and his his um his fellow bank robbers would be in the bank doing the the dirty work so he was really an interesting man it sounds like they should have the fbi should have hired him <laughs> to figure out what the banks were doing wrong yeah like some of the money that me as an entrepreneur i see that as a market there you go <laughs> <laughs> take what you love and figure out how to get paid for it legally that's right but it was funny because he even had um when he was released uh, and he'd mm -hmm. hand out his business cards at book events you know MWA events, mm -hmm. they would have mm -hmm. his mugshot on it from the 1960s. So if you think about it, you know, that entrepreneurship and self-promotion, here's a guy who was writing crime fiction when he was released. Who has more authority than a guy who lived that life, um, who did hard time in Leavenworth and other federal correctional facilities than than some than Al. Um, so he immediately had in the writing community a certain respect, especially in the crime writing community, because he he was writing what he knew about, right? Write what you know about. Right? Al knew about prisoners and convicts and bank robbers and 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 that's what he liked to write about. Exactly. You write what you know. And if you're a criminal, you write about crime because <laughs> that makes sense to you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, now we're going to have to go back and research what Celastic books he wrote. Because <laughs> we have I a whole, a, I bought whole a, generation I, that yeah. brought up on these. I bought a few. I found them on eBay. 
Um, one was about one was not a crime novel. It was about a motorcycle racer. Um, and but there was a couple uh, more about crime and, and criminals. So, um, but he was he did it. He he uh, he managed to have that second act to his life and um, was successful. We all wish the best of these successful <laughs> authors. It's fun to take their their story and turn it into something fictional, but is it really fictional when you go back through it? <laughs> right. <laughs> Drawing on real life experiences. Yes. What's fictional and what's fact? You would have to draw that line for yourself. Right. Exactly. And we encourage you to go back and research the find out about these characters because <laughs> there's so much that's not in the books that you can't write about exactly yes so you have all these fun books what actually led you into writing well you know i grew up um my family was always big uh, a big reading family uh, especially my dad uh he would read two or three books at a time um Mostly escapism fiction, you know, World War II novels, cr uh, crime novels, detective mysteries, but always reading. Uh, my two older sisters were, were big readers. So I kind of grew up in this house full of books and reading and and there was always money for books, you know, when the scholastic book time rolled around each month. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that started it. And then I remember when I was in high school. Um, John Irving came out with uh, Hotel New Hampshire. And I remember reading that book and finishing it and thinking, man, I wish I could write a book like that. You know, something that would make you laugh until you realize how sad it is. And then the laughter stops like that, because that's what was my experience reading that book as an 18 year old kid. Um, th that was the first time I really can remember thinking, I think I want to be a writer. And then when I was in, in college, I took my first creative writing class at the University of Buffalo, and then I was hooked. I said, well, this is this is what I want to do. Uh, I want to become a writer. Um, unfortunately, it took me about 30 years to get my first book published, um, um, traditional traditionally published. Um, so it was 30 years of rejection and and three or four failed novels in the drawer, um, but I stuck with it. And uh, when Muscle Cars came out about eight years ago, that was my my book that kind of opened some doors for me. That there, now you gave a lot of authors and those going into writing a lot of information. It isn't you stop at one rejection. It took you thirty years to get to where it you are. It took me thirty damn years. That's <laughs> uh, a long time. Um, but no, it's. I think when you're a writer, um, you can't stop. I mean, it, there's too much. There's a need to write there, and there's too much pleasure that I get from you know pushing words around on the page and and putting my daydreams down on on paper. Um, there was just, you know, I couldn't imagine not stopping. Um, and when I, when it was getting to that point of being, you know, almost 30 years in and just a handful of short stories published, the way I rationalized it was, well, every weekend, millions of people go and play golf and they're never going to play in the masters. And every weekend, millions of people go and play tennis and they're never going to play Wimbledon. Well, I'm going to write, I'll get up every morning at five and, and write, um, and I will never be published. And 
you know, I'll leave a bunch of stuff for my kids to read after I'm gone. So mm -hmm. that was the way I was approaching it. This is going to be my activity, my hobby, um, all the time, still sending things out, still getting rejections, still workshopping, going to writers conferences. Um, and like I said, eventually, you know, muscle cars came out and that gave me opened the door for me. You need that one epiphany that opens all your doors. Once you have your foot in the door, now you can go any direction you need. Yeah, but you don't let up on the gas. <laughs> you work even harder, no. right? Because uh, right. now, you, after all this time, you're in. You got, you've got, you got connections. You're starting to network. Uh, people are getting to know you and your work. Mm -hmm. um, and now is not the time to let up. Um, at least that was my approach, right? And so it made me want to work harder. It's kind of like when you'd go to the gym and you'd start after like a certain amount of time, you start seeing results, like your, your weight's dropping or whatever. And that makes you want to work out more. I, I lost five pounds. I want to lose two more. And it makes you want to work out more. It becomes kind of like an, almost like an addiction. And that's what happened with me. It's like, oh, I got published. You know, I'm getting reviews. Uh, I want more of that. Um, and that was really kept driving me and re-energizing me um, once, once, once I started getting published. Exactly. You need to work on your branding. You need to work on your name. You need to network. But you also have to write in there as well. Yeah. And it's tough. It's, that's, uh, you know, marketing a book, bringing a book to market. It's a full-time job. Um, and I already have a full-time job that pays the light bill. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's tough to juggle that, you know, we talk about work-life balance. So now it's work-life writing and marketing balance. Um, it's a lot to, to do and keep producing new stuff. Um, but we do the best we can and, and we just keep working at it. Exactly. I mean, there's some products out there that are really great for authors, which is coming out to market your Rhino like CRM. So that would help with your marketing and take time that you're spending over here and give it back to your writing or your personal life. Right. Yeah. So you have to figure out what works with you, what you're comfortable with, um, what you can you know, which social media platforms, you can't do all of them, which do you want to focus on? Um, so there's a lot of things to consider that you never had to consider before, but they're good problems to have, right? Because you wouldn't have these mm -hmm. problems unless you had a book to to get out to market. So um, exactly. you, always just, you always just kind of look on the positive side. This is better than the 30 years of not getting published. <laughs> Right. It's now, okay, I have a okay following with Facebook, uh, but a expansive following on Instagram. Which right. one works better? Well, I'm going to go over Instagram because I right. have X amount of people there. You have to find what platform works for you and a, what lifestyle that works for you because you have to have yeah. the balance. Exactly. But we are almost out of time. So where can our listeners and our viewers find you and your books? You can find me at my website, which is SG and then my last name, E-O-A-N-N-O-U.com. Um, my books can be found on the website. Uh, 
and they're distributed internationally. So anywhere you buy books, you can get a copy of yesteryear. Um, and I always tell people the best place to, to buy my book or anybody's book is your, your local indie bookstore. Um, you know, walk down the corner and, and uh, help out a, an author and, and help out the, the local merchants as well. Exactly. We love our big mer merchants like Walmart, Target, Barnes and Nobles, Amazon. But at the same time, if we can keep the money in our community, it helps our communities grow. Absolutely. So uh, for thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. And for our readers and listeners, happy reading.